Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 28th, 2014. Okay, my my brain is fried. You're going, it's Monday. How could your brain be fried? Because <laughs> I spent part of the weekend premiering and previewing the uh, sermons that y'all have sent me to be considered for this year's worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I'm starting to feel bitter. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, and we stop, and we open up our Bibles to see if what we're being taught actually squares with what God's Word says when we read it in context. And over and again, we find that so Many of the most popular pastors and preachers and teachers and conference speakers and Christian book authors, um, well, they really don't handle God's Word correctly. In other words, they're peddling and making a profit on false doctrine. And false doctrine is a dangerous, dangerous thing. The reason why it's dangerous is it takes your eyes off of Christ. That's really what it does. It takes your eyes off of Jesus and has you chasing after bizarre teachings that God never intended you to believe. Uh, believe me, if God intended you to believe many of the false doctrines that are running around today, uh, you know, under the name of Christianity, his word would actually teach these doctrines explicitly. And Christians would have believed, taught, and confessed these doctrines going all the way back to the earliest church fathers. But you find that they don't, and God's word doesn't. And as a result of it, what's being taught is dangerous. Um, you know, let me just ask you this: How much arsenic do you like in your drinking water? Would you like a cap full and a gallon of it? You know, maybe two, three. I mean, how much? You know, how much arsenic do you prefer? I mean, do you think is okay? You know, it's probably a good way of putting it. And so, um, yeah, listen, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, it's not politically correct. It does step on people's toes. It has the tendency to create angst in people and, and upset them, and I understand that. And uh, as you listen to Fighting for the Faith, if you're a new listener, my recommendation is 
take some time to become familiar with how this program operates and give us three weeks. Give us three weeks to hear out what it is that we're doing. Listen to three weeks worth of programming and you'll begin to see what's going on in this program. And uh, you might even have God's word open your eyes. And that's the other issue. Don't give me the benefit of the doubt. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to listen to Fighting for the Faith with an open mind. Nope. I don't get the benefit of the doubt. A doubt, and I don't want you to listen with an open mind. Listen with an open Bible. And if you're thinking this, this guy's a nut. There's just no way he's a hater. You know, and I can't stand that. That's that's okay. That's all right. Just don't listen with an open Bible, and test to see if what I'm saying is true according to what God's Word says. And uh, and that's all I can say. <laughs> Leave it at that. All right, let's talk about what we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said at the opening of the program, this is the week that um, is one of the most difficult broadcast week weeks for me every year. This is the week where we unveil the finalists for our annual worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Now, last week you got a reprieve. Last week you got nothing but good Easter sermons. And you'll notice I purposely picked a variety of types of sermons. Now, when it comes to exegetical sermons, there are actually a couple of different types that they can fall into. You, 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 the, you look at the sermon that we did with uh, Phil Johnson. That's more of, you know, the pastor picks a text um, and then drills down into its meaning and really sucks the marrow out of all of it. And the, the text that he picked was clearly about the uh, the resurrection of Jesus. You look at uh, Pastor Gervais Charmley. He picked a more traditional route in that he had a, uh, a gospel text that uh, I, I don't know if he – I think he picked it rather than it was chosen for him. And of course, he 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 drilled into the major theme of that text and pointing us to Jesus. And then we had the Lutheran homilies. Homilies, um, they are a lot briefer than uh, you know, say like an, a reformed or evangelical in-depth exegetical line by line. Uh, sermon and the idea behind the homily, the the primary idea is that it's exhortation, that it's proclamation. Um, it's it's not uh, p- pull out your number two pencil and let's take notes and let's let's really figure out what you know what's going on for all of you know for you know all of the nuances of the Greek and things like that. That's not exactly the idea behind a homily. A homily is more about taking up what that passage says. And yeah, yes, exegeting it, but exegeting it in a way where the pastor can proclaim to you what Christ has done, proclaim to you what God's law says, proclaim to you what the gospel says. And so a slightly different approach, but we took a look at the different varieties of sermons out there. Each and every uh, sermon that we brought to bear last week was Christ-centered, cross-focused, rightly handled law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and focused our faith on the true uh, you know, uh, author and perfecter of our faith, and that's Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. This week will be the exact opposite. This, oh man. 
And I'm doing my best to actually come up with a variety of types of bad Easter sermons, which is really difficult. Um, (laughs) I've noticed that this year, the majority of the sermons that have been sent to me fit into one type. Although what I'm trying to do is find examples of several different types because, uh, there's, there's, let's just say recurring patterns when it comes to false doctrine, uh, and bad teaching, uh, you know, on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to try to, uh, spread it out. And at the moment I have four finalists that for sure have made the cut and uh, it, it's not too late to send in your suggestion. I, if you send in your suggestion, I would say through Wednesday. I can I can take a look, and then I will decide who the final sermon is going to be from, or final sermons. I haven't decided if there's going to be four. Uh, I mean, five or six contestants this year. There is, you know, in in years past we have had more than five. Uh, you know, if uh, you know if I find two short bad sermons, I can stick them together on uh, on the same day and we could have six contestants but um again if you want to uh, have a sermon considered for this year's worst easter sermon of the year contest and again this is a, this is basically a study in contrast you take what you heard last week you know with the examples of good sermons and compare then what you're hearing this week and the contrast should you know cause light bulbs to go off in your brain you're going Oh, now I see it. See, part of uh, what fighting for the faith does is it helps you mentally frame theology and helps you kind of gives you the tools to uh, to distinguish between bad doctrine and and sound doctrine, Christ centered doctrine, and only that doctrine that claims to be Christ centered or this kind of Christ centered in name only, but isn't really uh, focusing us on Jesus. And so. That's the idea is, is that uh, over and again on fighting for the faith, you know, we're constantly uh, foiling, I think is the the right way of putting it. So this week, um, yeah, again, it, <laughs> I think my brain is melted um, as a result of the previews. And it's, I got to say this, it's not, it, if your sermon that you suggested doesn't make the cut, um, it's not that it wasn't a bad sermon. <laughs> I haven't heard a good one yet. That's not the issue. The issue is that uh, um, you know I'm trying to find the the best worst example of particular types of of uh, sermons to <laughs> to feature here on our our contest. So yeah, that kind of lets you know where we're at. And uh, and oh man, oh man, <laughs> you know, hey. And just a reminder, we are less than two weeks, kind of a reminder, we are less than two weeks away with my debate with uh, Jim Staley of the, uh, formerly, he he, again, he's trying to distance himself from the Hebrew roots movement, although he's still really in that camp. Um, And the the topic, you know, should Christians observe the Sabbath? And, you know, he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant uh, uh, demands regarding the Sabbath. So... And uh, that will be broadcast on the internet, 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, um, and go to sabbathdebate.com for details. And if you have the ability to make it to St. Louis, or if you live in and around the St. Louis area, uh, if you came out to the event uh, in order to support poor pirate Roseboro, that, <laughs> that would be that would be helpful. Okay, so let's talk about what we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You understand what we're going to be doing in hour number two. We will begin our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, but let's talk about what we're going to do in hour number one. We're going to start off with a Joel Osteen update, and I consider what it is that you are about to hear the definitive argument against... Um, 
the idea that uh, God the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you via promptings and internal liver shivers and things like that. And you're thinking, really, Osteen gave an argument against that? No, no, no. He didn't give an argument against it. He gave an argument for it. But his argument for it, in, in the midst of it, provides us with the definitive evidence that God is not speaking this way. <laughs> Going, okay, I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, trust me, you, you really do want to hear it. Um, then we're going uh, to kind of change gears up a little bit. And uh, I've got a blog post from, uh, from Dan Hazeltine of, uh, of Jars of Clay. And he took to the Internet on Friday on his blog post in order to kind of do what I would consider kind of like World Vision-esque spin and damage control regarding the story that blew up in his face, uh, regarding his uh, coming out on Twitter supporting same-sex marriage. And uh, I'll read the uh, the blog post that he wrote and you know kind of chime in and point out the things that are there and the things that are conspicuously missing. Uh, from his explanation that I think are worth noting. Um, sometime in here, we'll take a break, and we come back from the break. We have a Keith Craft update. It has been a while since we have done a Keith Craft update, and uh, we're going to be listening to uh, uh, Keith Craft Gra- talk about Next to Impossible. He's um, got a, uh, a, a semi-new building down there in Frisco, Texas, and uh, you know, Cathedral of... <laughs> Of I don't forget the name of Cathedral Frisco is the name of it, but uh, this is a guy who is really, 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 really dangerous, and he's been made famous here at Fighting for the Faith in the past because he is the inventor of the mariachi trench. And you're going mariachi trench. Listen, when I tell you, there are a few episodes of Fighting for the Faith in the archives that are worth their weight in gold. If you go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith and you type in Keith Craft. Mariachi Trench, mm-hmm. Mariachi, like in Mariachi Band. That is <laughs> one of my all-time favorite episodes of Fighting for the Faith. Just, just saying, you know, just, you know, I, I do have a few of you know episodes that are actually my favorite. That is one of them. So, if you haven't heard the Mariachi Trench episode of Fighting for the Faith, that is one that's worth going into the archives. And then in hour number two, we will kick off our 2014 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And our first contestant this year, by the way is Robert Morris of Gateway Church, and we will be listening to his Easter sermon entitled, God Needs You. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. See, you're thinking, is that what? That's really a sermon entitled? Yes, and that's his Easter sermon title. And <laughs> I mean, there's so many things going wrong here. I lost track. Like halfway through the sermon, I lost track of the combined total number of bad things going wrong in the sermon. So, that's what, how we're going to uh, spend our uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith today. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're starting off with a Joel Osteen update, that requires us to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like a Christmas tree. You know that 
walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! Shiny teeth and me. That's right. Shiny teeth and me by Chip Skylark. That's our Joel Osteen update music. Okay, so we're going to be listening to a portion of a message recently delivered by Joel Osteen entitled, Are You Listening? Uh Are you listening? And as you listen to this, (laughs) as you listen to this message, are you listening? Um, (laughs) I don't think Joel intended it to be this way, but it just so happens that this message provides us with the strongest argument that I have ever heard that God is speaking to you through, you know, subjective prompts and little omen type things happening out there and stuff like that. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But the thing is, is that Joel didn't intend it to be an argument against these things. He actually intended it to be an argument for these things. Yeah, so without any further ado, here's Joel Osteen and Are You Listening? Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out today. I like to start with something funny. And I heard about this man. He was the only Protestant in a large Catholic neighborhood. Every Friday during Lent, while his neighbors were eating cold fish, he was in the backyard grilling a steak. They couldn't stand the temptation and decided to try to convert him to Catholicism. He finally agreed. A priest came over and sprinkled water on his head, said, you were born a Baptist, you were raised a Baptist, but now you're a Catholic. The next year, on the first Friday of Lent, they smelled the same smell in the air. They rushed to his backyard. He was back there sprinkling water over his steak, saying, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, but now you're a fish. Hold up your Bible and say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about are you listening? Right now, there are hundreds of radio frequencies in the air. Now, notice how this argument works. He doesn't begin by actually opening up the Bible and saying, let's turn to uh, like the, the book of Hesitations, chapter 9, verse 67. No, he doesn't, he's not doing that. Um, so he's not beginning with a biblical argument. Mm-hmm. How does his argument begin? Ah, by talking about, you know, by creating a metaphor in our mind. And what's the metaphor? Well, there's all these broadcast stations out there on the airwaves. And see, God wants to talk to us just like that. So he begins with the metaphor rather than the Word of God. Clear sign that you are going to be taught something that isn't actually in God's Word. Bad way to start. Hundreds of television signals all around us, yet we're not receiving any of them. The reason is we're not tuned in. If we were to get a radio tuned to that frequency, we would hear what the station was saying. In the same way, God is constantly transmitting to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, where does the Bible tell us about radio God? Uh-huh. Um, that, you know, and that we need to figure out how to get in on that frequency so we can hear the transmission. I'm not familiar with any passage that says that. He wants to lead us, 
guide us, protect us, give us insight. Yeah, and all of that stuff that you just said God wants to do, he does that through his written word. But too often, we're not tuned to his frequency. Mm, See, apparently I got a busted, you know, radio. I mean, who knew? You have to pay attention to what you're feeling down in here. God doesn't speak to us most of the time out loud, like you see on the movies. He speaks to us through subtle things. Mm-hmm. Okay. What passage says this? You have an unrest, an uneasiness. You don't feel good about something. Now, why do you have to blame that on God? You know, you know, that uneasiness, that unrest may not even be spiritual at all. It just might be due to the fact that um, you, know, you're, you, you, you are detecting something that is easily explainable using natural means. Mm-hmm. That's not just your nerves. That's God saying, go slow. Mm-hmm. That's God saying, go slow, right? Okay, now, remember, I set this up that this is the definitive argument against what he's actually arguing for. Just stay tuned. You'll, I'll, you'll see why it's going to become very crystal clear why this is the definitive argument against actually what he's teaching. Be careful. There's danger up ahead. It can be a prompting, a suggestion. All of a sudden, you have a desire to check on your child to call a friend, to start a new class. It's easy to think, oh, I don't need to do that. No, you've heard the phrase, trust your gut. A better way to put it is trust your sensor. Uh Where does the Bible say, trust my sensor? Hmm. That's God telling you what to do. Where does the Bible say that God's telling me what to do in my sensor? There are times that God will give you intuition. Hmm. You just know something. You can't explain it. You don't have facts to back you up. You just know that you know that you know. Yeah, again, why do you think that this is God working? I mean, how come this this can't be explained naturally? I mean, there's a lot of things we don't even understand about how the human body works. Don't override that. Don't talk yourself out of it. That's God giving you inside information, Mm. helping you to know things that you wouldn't normally know. Some people say that's the universe talking to you. I like to add two words. That's the creator of the universe talking to you. That's great that you add the two words, creator of, you know, creator of the universe talking to you. Um, I mean, that sounds really pious and all. Again, um, where does the Bible teach this? Yeah, it doesn't. That's your heavenly father. He didn't just put you on the earth and say, good luck. You're on your own. I hope you make it. No, he's given you a helper a guide, a counselor, his spirit lives in you. The question is, are you listening? Yeah, where in the Bible does it say that because God's spirit lives in me that that means I'm going to receive direct revelation from him in my censor? It doesn't. In 1999... Now, here comes the argument. This is the definitive argument that proves what he's saying is not true. Here we go. I was eating dinner at my house one evening... My father called and asked me if I would speak for him that Sunday at Lakewood. In my 36 years, I'd never ministered one time before. I didn't have any desire to be up in front of people. I liked being behind the scenes. I said, I'm sorry, Daddy. That's just not who I am. I'm not a minister. He laughed and said, well, that's fine, Joel. At least I wanted to ask you. When I sat back down to finish eating my dinner... Something said so strongly, Joel, you need to do it. Mm, So something very strongly told him 
that he needs to do it. Hmm. And why should I think this is God the Holy Spirit? Wasn't out loud. It was just an impression, a knowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't explain it. It didn't make sense to my mind. Every voice of reasoning said, don't do it. But I couldn't get away from it. Called my father back, said I'd changed my mind. I ministered for him that next Sunday. What I didn't realize is that would be the last Sunday of my father's life. The next Friday, he had a heart attack and went to be with the Lord. Had I not ministered that Sunday, I don't know if I would have had the courage to step up and pastor the church. God knows what's best for us. All right, so now that's the argument. Now, here's how this is the definitive proof that what he's trying to argue for is actually not true. Why on earth should I believe that God the Holy Spirit is the one who prompted Joel Osteen to go ahead and preach that sermon that week before his father had that fatal heart attack and died, which then became the impetus for him becoming the next pastor of uh, Lakewood when Joel Osteen chronically and habitually twists and mangles God's word. He teaches a light form of the word of faith, heresy, and there isn't a biblical passage that he doesn't twist. This is a man who has not met the biblical standard and studied and showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. He does not meet the biblical qualifications for a pastor as laid out in Titus, that he teaches what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebukes those who contradict it. This is a man who can't even bring himself on any kind of regular basis to talk about sin, the repentance of sins, and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. So, He is pointing me to his experience and saying that he was prompted by this experience and that that he believed that was God the Holy Spirit telling him to preach that sermon which then led to him taking the reins of Lakewood. Well, that being the case, I'm not going to question whether or not he had that experience. It's clear when we take that experience and we measure it against what God's Word says, that we now know what the source of that experience was. It wasn't God the Holy Spirit who prompted him to preach that sermon that day. We can say with absolute certainty, the one who prompted him to preach that sermon that day was none other than the devil himself. Yep. Definitive argument against the idea that God is speaking to you through promptings. Thank you, Joel Osteen. You just proved it. All right, moving along from the Dan Hazeltine blog at danhazeltine.com. The headline reads, Reset Context Tangent Apology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've likened this on social media to a um, World Vision-esque kind of spin damage control. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, um, Jars of Clay isn't a a band that is uber popular out there in the mainstream secular uh, uh, music world. No, no, no. They have a huge following uh, among Christians. And as a result of uh, Dan Hazeltine's um, statements on Twitter, it uh, has created some damage uh, to the, um, you know, their ability to have an ongoing 
um, livelihood as a Christian band, and so he's had to backpedal. But let's pay attention to what he said and what he didn't say and see what's going on in this apology of sorts that he's uh, put out there on his blog. Dan Hazeltine writes, he says, Last week, Jars of Clay performed at a music festival in Australia. As part of the programming of the event, the festival offered various breakout sessions and panel discussions on a host of topics that might be interesting to the festival attendees. I was invited to sit in on a panel discussion about moral behavior in the church. The question we were presented was, does the Western church's focus on moral behavior undermine the church's ability to love? That was the question. One side of me sat... Uh, of, of, of me sat the head of the lobbying group that fought against the legalization of gay marriage in Australia. On the other side of me was a Christian street evangelist. I was immediately aware that I had not given much attention to the dialogue about gay rights. I knew that it was a focal point on many, uh, for many people in the church and that it was a major issue in the growing partisanship of American politics. I just had not had the opportunity to think about it much. Now, see, i got to stop right there. Um, well, if you've read your Bible, you've thought about it because God's word so clearly speaks to this issue. Hmm. But we continue. During the panel discussion, the question was asked to the lobbyist, why not legalize gay marriage? His response sparked my curiosity. He said that gay marriage was a slippery slope into other forms of marriage, i.e. polygamy, uh, marriage to animals, etc. He also said that it was harmful to children to be forced into a situation without a father or without a mother. He also spoke of the sanctity of traditional marriage model and how it could be diminished. It was a lively conversation, and in the end, I don't think we reached much of an answer to the question of moral behavior in the church. I did walk away with quite a lot to think about. I had so many questions about gay marriage. With so many angles to consider and so many layers to unfold, it was overwhelming. And so I did what most people do. I, I got distracted, and I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Again, you read your Bible, and... This is an issue that comes up repeatedly in God's Word. Weird. So two days later, I was on an international flight traveling back to the U.S. I should have been sleeping, uh, but the time reversal's effect on my body kept me awake, and so I caught up on a few movies, and one that stirred my soul more than Anchorman 2 or American Hustle was 12 Years a Slave. The film had such incredible storytelling and superb acting that gave faces and souls to the men, women, and children trapped in slavery. The thing that continued to swirl around my mind was a scene when one of the slave owners was quoting scripture to slaves. Mm -hmm. He was using the words to drive home a point about his supremacy over the slaves and the wrath they would face if they were disobedient. Now, I'm going to stop right here and point something out here. Uh, Dan Hazeltine is not the first person to note that supposedly, um, you know, the Bible has been used to justify all kinds of evil things, including slavery. And so, therefore, we, we can't possibly use the Bible to say that homosexual sins are actually sins because people have twisted the Bible regarding slavery. In fact, this is the same old, tired, liberal canard used by liberals in emergence regarding the homosexual issue. It's basically this idea, well, hey, you know, people abused the Bible back in the 19th century to justify slavery. So, you know, we can't use the Bible to say that homosexual sins are actually sins. That's how this goes. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's be fair here. 
if you're going to use this argument, okay, let's try it with some other things, all right? Okay, so let's say you find out that your husband is cheating on you, okay? He's, you know, he's sleeping with a secretary or something like that. And so you say to your husband, you're a Christian. This is, this is adultery. And he turns around and says, oh, you know, um, people use the Bible in the 19th century to say that slavery was okay and they misused the Bible. So you can't sit there and quote the Bible to me as if somehow it put some kind of moral standards on me that would keep me from being able to sleep with any woman that I want. Right? How about theft? You know, so, you know, you, you, you know somebody at church is, is, uh, is uh, arrested by the police and caught, you know, going out and engaging in petty thievery, right? And so you go to him and you say, listen, brother, you need to repent. You're stealing from people. God's word says thou shalt not steal. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. Listen, you, 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 you are just judging me and you're misusing God's word. Uh-huh. And see, you know, because people use the Bible to justify slavery in the 19th century, you can't turn around and say that me taking stuff from people is wrong. You see, the whole thing comes apart. Okay. The whole point is, is that if people are misusing scripture, you need to demonstrate that they're misusing scripture. So that, because there is a right way for scripture to be understood. So this argument that Dan Hazeltine is uh, putting out on his blog, it's the same old, tired, liberal, and emergent argument to open the door, basically as a way of silencing Scripture, silencing those who would use God's Word to sit, speak the truth regarding this sin, and uh, and basically say, well, we can't know anything. That's kind of the, this is this is the variety of this argument. So uh, Hazeltine continues, says this guy, this slave guy, was misusing scripture to back up his acts of oppression towards another human. He was using scripture to back up his ideas that slaves were less than human, and he and so should not be given the rights of humans. Notice he was misusing scripture. I would not say that the issues of slavery, which are tied to color and race, clearly mirror the issues of gay rights, but for some reason, all the questions I had surrounding gay marriage came rushing back, Uh because you've been listening to the liberal emergence. I sat on the plane and thought about the hard questions I would have to ask myself in order to find my way toward a healthy dialogue about gay rights. If gay men and women were being oppressed, not having an opinion in the matter seemed equal to the acceptance of systematic racism by way of silence. How can how can it be systematic racism? They're not born that way. Uh huh. To liken homosexuality to you know you know to racism you know to issues of race is to deny something fundamental. Humans are born either male or female, and God made them to basically be engaged in sexual relationships with people of the opposite sex. We continue. So the common quote is, what is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, and that came to mind. So having grown up in the Christian church, I have observed and perpetrated many acts that originated out of fear. And in my career as an artist, musician, and storyteller, I've attempted to illuminate fear-based behavior in the church. So I have attempted to provide questions that could lead to a more love-based approach. Uh, This has meant taking a careful and often critical view of contemporary church behavior and culture, and at times this has led me to unproductive and unfair assessments of the church culture. Other times it has helped me navigate around unhealthy environments and practices that could have caused me to hurt people. I wanted to figure out if I had a blind spot. Uh, Was I buying into a form of oppression, or does the legalization of gay marriage actually undermine traditional marriage and the biblical view of how we are to call uh, how we are called to live our lives? So, yes, the implications and the application.
applications of answers to these hard questions are staggeringly important, and my engagement of the issue of, uh, of, gen- of just under three days left me very unequipped to answer my own questions. So that was the background and the motivation behind my latest Twitter conversation, a tangent and an explanation. Why Twitter? Well, like most people who use it, I have found that 140 characters is incredibly limiting. I have to constantly re-sculpt and refashion my words. I'm constantly chopping and simplifying my statements. And for that very reason, it keeps me and others from just vomiting opinions into the middle of the conversation. I have liked the limitations because some people, me included, like to write doctoral dissertations that cannot possibly be helpful in a live and organic dialogue about an issue. The format is quick and it's inclusive. It is also the only space I know with such a vast collection of different people with different perspectives. Now, the drawback to Twitter as a discussion format is that it is sometimes hard to find the nuance in a person's post. And in my case, I think I'm communicating one thing, but what comes out is entirely different. In my haste to get the next idea out, I wrote things that were unnecessarily combative. For example, in my latest conversation on Twitter, I knew that the immediate response to questions about the gay community uh, would be about whether gay sex was wrong or right. I, I do think that is part of the issue, but I wanted to talk about other areas, and having just been on a panel discussion, the way the ways the church's focus on moral behavior undermines its ability to love, I didn't want to get stuck on the moral right or wrong part and stall any ability to talk about other perspectives of the issue. So I wrote... Quote, it is perhaps the less important to know what is right and wrong, morally speaking, than to know how to act towards those we consider wrong. To which I would say, it's important to understand and keep in mind both. Quote, I don't particularly care about Scripture's stance on what is wrong. I care more about what about how it says we should treat people. Again, um, what... Scripture says is wrong and right defines how we should love them because the call of the gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We're not loving people if we do not call them to repent of their sins and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. So, Hazeltine continues, in the heat of the discussion, I communicated poorly and thus unintentionally wrote that I did not care about what Scripture said. Thus, the tsunami hit. It was picked up by bloggers and written into editorials before I can blink, and rightly so. People were shocked and offended by my statement dismissing the value of Scripture. I got it, and possibly I got what that combination of statements warranted for response. I should have chosen my words more wisely. I care about what Scripture says, and it matters. The second round of poorly chosen words surrounded the clarity of Scripture. I was trying to communicate that although we often say Scripture is clear about this or that, that the very fact that so many people disagree or have alternate perspectives or interpretations of scriptures mean that we have to move beyond simply quoting a scripture to prove our point. We have to dig into the scripture and help translate it and offer context. Simply quoting a scripture can stall out a good, honest dialogue. Again, notice here, the the important thing is dialogue. Uh Uh-huh. This is emergent, postmodern speak. Uh, But what I wrote was, never like the phrase scripture clearly says blank about... And because most people read and interpreted Scripture wrong, I don't think Scripture clearly states much of anything regarding morality. Yeah, that was definitely not my intended point. Uh, This was also met with a great amount of negative feedback. So that said, Twitter is a great place to share selfies and a horrible forum for discussion and a bad place to communicate under the fog of jet lag, which leads me to this. My apology. In my questions and dialogue with people on Twitter, 
it became evident that the issue I had chosen to discuss was far too personal, nuanced, and deeply connected to faith and our human condition to honor the amount of wrestling that others have done on this topic. And though they were my questions and what is my dialogue uh, provoked by me, it bled into the Jars of Clay world and my other bandmates felt uh, people's dismay, frustration, and the projection of my views and ideas back onto them. It's not theirs to shoulder. It was a poor choice of venue on my part. I chose some of my words poorly, and I was unable to moderate the conversation in such a way that it kept everyone's views and shared validity and civility as I had hoped. And so I am not going to continue the conversation on that forum. I do apologize for causing such a negative stir. In the coming days, I will begin posting some questions on my blog, Dan Hazeltine, and even though uh, doing some interviews around the topic, as I believe there can be healthy dialogue and better understanding, even if there is not shared agreement, I'm dedicated to being a lifelong learner with a full heart, Dan. So he didn't apologize exactly for denying what Scripture said. And the shape of his argument is an emergent shape focusing on the importance more on the dialogue than what Scripture says and all that kind of stuff. But there you go. Again, it's kind of a uh, World Vision-esque um, spin damage control on Dan's part. And what he said, you know, again, as somebody who has been in dialogue within conversation with the emergent church for a long time, I note the uh, glaring similarities between what he said and what they said. And again, the issue here is what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Or as Romans says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. That being the case, the the way we love our neighbors, heterosexual and homosexual, is to call them to repentance of all of their sins and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And that is, well, an unpopular thing to do nowadays. But it requires you to also actually believe, teach, and confess the historic Christian faith and believe, teach, and confess what God's Word says regarding our sinful condition and what are sins and what are not sins and that the, what the solution is for those sins, not to try harder or do better, but to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And what really troubles me about what he said is, is that even in his explanation, um, what we've got here is, um, well, something that sounds remotely, not even remotely, very much akin to postmodern, you know, emergent doublespeak and uh, arguments that are shaped by bad, you know, basically bad thinking is a means of trying to find a way to undermine what God's Word says so that Christians can say in the name of God that we should really embrace same-sex marriage. And I fear that's what Dan Hazeltine is doing. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have uh, a Keith Craft updates. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with liberal arguments that basically make it impossible for you to know anything that God's Word says. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 let me thank you for your support we cannot do what we are doing here 
without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the Mariachi Trench. Invented by Keith Kraft of Elevate Life Church in Frisco, Texas. Now, today we will be listening to Keith Kraft talk about next to impossible. Now, this is an impossible sermon that is impossibly teaching something that is impossible to actually find in God's Word, but Keith Kraft has never let the limits of God's Word actually keep him from doing the impossible by teaching impossible doctrines. So, <laughs> what did I just hear? Yeah, I, it's hard to explain. Let me go ahead and kill the music here, and uh, without any further ado, here's Keith Kraft of Elevate Life Church and his sermon entitled, Next to impossible. Here we go. And whether you're new or not, just play along with this next thing. Put your hand on your heart. We just have some things that we like to come into agreement with that God wants us to come into agreement with, with him. Say this with me. Say, I am who God says I am, a child of God, the righteousness of God. I am the apple of God's eye. Yeah. Notice who he's uh, aping. That would be Joel Osteen. Yeah. That's a a lot of these um, word of faith guys. They ape Joel Osteen, and you know they come up with their own creeds. And notice where the emphasis is on that syllable. It's on the I. I am God's workmanship, created for good works. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today, I open up my mind to receive the word of God so I can think like God, be like God, and do life the way God intended for me to live. Let's lift up our hands. Say this with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Help me elevate my thinking. So I can elevate my life in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you want to elevate your life? Come on. I'm glad you're at Elevate Life today because we're not called Average Life Church. We're not first church of anything. We're not the name of the street out there, Teal Assembly. But we are Elevate Life Church because guess what? Your life is going to be elevated in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, turn around and greet somebody. Would you do that? Just tell them they're looking good. You're glad they're here. And we're honored to have you. <laughs> April showers bring May flowers. How many of you know we need some rain up in here in Texas? We need some we need some rain. So glad you're here. I'm glad you, all of y'all are made of sugar and I'm glad you didn't melt. When the when the when the the water hits you today, so so glad that you that you're here. We're in our next series, and I want to ask you: How many of you believe something good is going to happen in your next? Come on, do you believe that? That's what we believe. That's why something good's going to happen in my next. Okay, and what's my next? We're talking about next because your next starts now. And where does the Bible talk about my next starting now or starting anytime? I want to talk to you about next to impossible. Have you ever used that phrase? Well, that's just next to impossible. You know what next to impossible means? One step away from possible. This is just nonsense masquerading as Christian preaching. Wow. You know what next to impossible means? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And I want to talk to you today, and I've got some notes that are being passed there. If you'd like some notes, just raise your hand. It's got a lot of good information on the back of it as well. But I want to give you the big thought for this message, and it's this. When you are willing to give God what seems next to impossible, then God gives you your next that seemed impossible. Yeah, I can't wait to see a biblical passage that says this. Apparently, God is only going to give if you give. So think of it this way. This is God giving you based upon your merit in order to for you to merit God's next to impossible thing. Well, you've got to give something that's next to impossible. This is salvation by works. So when you give God, you're next to impossible. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. That's what God's asking you to do today is to give him your next to impossible. How many of you have got some things in your life right now that you're believing for? How many of you are believing for something? Okay, you know why we have to believe? Yeah, I'm believing for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, which I can point to biblical passages that say I should be believing for those things. And I'm believing in Jesus for those things. Believe for it because it's next to impossible. That's why the Bible requires us to have faith. Faith is believing that God's way is better than my way. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is trust. The Greek word uh, pistuo or pistis, that's the the verb and the noun form respectively. Um, It's about, that's faith, that's trust, that's believing Okay, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Truly, what are we trusting and believing God for? The forgiveness of our sins. So because God has said that he forgives us in Christ, if we do not trust God's uh, word regarding Christ's mercy and forgiveness, one on the cross, it's impossible to please him. Because if we don't have faith, then we do, we're do. we not clothed with the righteousness of Christ and we remain under the wrath of God. That's what uh, Hebrews 11.6 is referring to. Every person here has a measure of faith. We've all been given a measure of faith by God. But it's up to each one of us individually to grow our faith. By you- Again, biblical passages, please, for all of these assertions that you're making. You being here today, you're growing your faith. You're believing that God might just say something to you. And guess what? That's what he wants. For you to have an expectant heart and spirit to say, you know what? God could speak to me today. And can I tell you something about one word from God? One word from God can change anything in your life. So how do you just believe today? You'll get one word that'll change everything in your next. Amen. So let's take a look at, um, at Genesis, the 22nd chapter. And while you're turning there, I want to... Genesis 22 is what teaches this next thing. Turn your attention to the screens. I love um, looking at people's lives who've achieved great things. And uh, there's a lot of stories about Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali that I like, but I love this statement. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Uh, Excuse me, but Muhammad Ali isn't in the Bible, and he's a Muslim. Yeah. Um, Why are you quoting him as if what he's saying somehow is biblical truth? Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. 
Come on, I want you to say that with me. Impossible is nothing. Come on, say that with me. Impossible is nothing. Why would I say that with you? That's a quote from a Muslim boxer. You see, the truth is we, we all, if we haven't said it, we've thought it. We thought, well, that's next to impossible. It's next to impossible to be the next billion dollar company. But it's possible. Uh, where in the Bible has God promised me that I'm going to be the CEO of the next billion-dollar company? Oh, yeah, he doesn't. It's impossible to have a great marriage. Never were truer words spoken. <laughs> but it's possible. It's next to impossible imagining that you're living on the edge of the potential that you have and that God puts you on the earth to do. That, like the old church song says, but baby, you ain't seen it in nothing yet. Bow, bow, baby, you. Church song. That's a, a church song. Uh, yeah. W- which Christian doctrine is that church song teaching us to believe? Ain't seen it in nothing yet. How many of y'all old enough to remember that song? Those of you that aren't privileged to know that song, that's what we learned in church. But baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Ow, ow. Genesis 22. I want to talk to you about how to make the next to possible possible. Anybody interested in that? So Genesis 22 teaches this, really. Uh-huh. Genesis 22 is the story of Abram sacrificing Isaac. This is a story about Christ, not about me receiving or doing the next to impossible. How to make the next to impossible possible. Very familiar passage of scripture, Genesis 22. Now it came to pass. First time we're going to stop. I'm going to exegete this for you. For those of you who don't know what that word means, don't worry about it. I'm just going to break it down to you because I'm going I'm to prophesy into your future right now. Uh, I doubt that. And now... It shall come to pass. You see, your future is now. Um, yeah, Genesis 22 is not about my future. Genesis 22 is not about me. It's about Jesus. What do you believe in God for? Like I said, the forgiveness of my sins. And Genesis 22, which I'm about to read, will prove that. What do you believe in God for? Some of us don't believe big enough. I love what Donald Trump says. He says, as long as you're going to be thinking anyway, think big. Uh, yeah. Would that be Saint Donald Trump of, uh, you know, the 13th disciple of Jesus? Let's take a look at uh, Genesis 22, because this is one of the key passages of the Old Testament type and shadow that points us to Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Now, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay. Now notice only son. If you know your Bible here, then you'll know that Abraham has two sons. One is the son of promise, Isaac, and the other is the son of the slave woman, Hagar, and that his name is uh, Ishmael. But here God says, go and sacrifice your son, your 
only son. Now, by the way, we know where Mount Moriah is. Mm -hmm. Mount Moriah is uh, crowned today by the Temple Mount. Yep, this is absolutely true. So you can go to Moriah today. It's in Jerusalem. And uh, so where is all this taking place? On the slopes of the Temple Mount, where, where it will be. Where was Jesus crucified? Just outside the city gates on the slopes of Mount Moriah. This is true. So, yeah, all of this has implication regarding Christ. This is type and shadow. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, pay attention when God's got third days going on in the Bible, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And if you're sitting there going, you know, that sounds kind of familiar. It kind of sounds like Jesus carrying his own cross. It should. It's on purpose because this is type and shadow pointing us to Jesus. And so he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they were, uh, went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. By the way, no truer words could possibly have been said by Abraham at this point. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Who is the one whom God provided for the burnt offering, ultimately? Well, it's Jesus. That's what all of this is pointing to. So when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Uh-huh. Wasn't Jesus laid on top of the wood before he was? Yeah, exactly. Right? So then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And keep in mind, Isaac at this point is the one whom... Is who is the one that the line of the Messiah through the Old Testament has come to up to this point. So Jesus is the unborn son of Isaac, or great-great-great-grandson, but you know, the genetic line of the Messiah is up to Isaac at this point. So what we're seeing here is all messianic, all pointing to Jesus. Your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Uh-huh. Thicket. Thicket has thorns. So there you've got a ram caught with a crown of thorns that has caught it. And behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There you go. And it was. 
several thousand years later, on that same mount, the Lord did provide. He provided the sacrifice for the sins of the world, my sins and yours, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just like that ram was caught in the thicket by its horns, Jesus also was caught. And the crown of thorns was around his head, and God provided the sacrifice to that day, provided the sacrifice of his son, his only begotten son, the forgiveness of sins, the whole world. Yeah, this is what this passage is talking about. What does Keith Kraft think this is about? You think he thinks it's about Jesus? Well, so far the setup has shown that he's completely oblivious to the fact that this passage is about Jesus. Let's continue. As long as you're going to be thinking, don't, don't waste your brain. Think big. Think what was impossible for somebody else is possible for you. Some of you need to get the father of origin voice out of your mind like Wilbur and his brother, Orville. When their father, who was a pastor, said if man were meant to fly, he'd have been given wings. And they went past their earthly father's voice and listened to their heavenly father's voice and said, maybe God will make a way that we all can. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. Think about it every night and day. Spread my wings and... So y'all know all those church songs. I love that. I didn't think y'all were that churched. That's awesome. I have the privilege of having some great relationships around the country with pastors. And every Saturday night or early Sunday morning, I text them and I pray for them. And I ask them, I ask God, God, what do you want me to say to my friends today? So to my friend Joel Osteen today, I said, hey, Joel the Great. That's how I started. Let me stop right there for just a minute. Can I tell you something? When God looks at you, he doesn't just call you by the name that your parents gave you. He just puts a, the great on the end of it. You can just start signing your name that way if you want. (laughs) Hello, I'm Keith the Great. The truth is that's the way God sees you. So I said, Joel. Yeah, really, what passage says that? And how are you getting that from Genesis 22? Along with about 23 other pastor friends around the country, Joel the Great, I am believing today for you what you're believing for, praying for you. Love, Keith. I sent that to several different pastors early this morning because here's what God's put in my heart today. What are you believing for? Can I just tell you as your pastor, for some of you who've decided to allow me to be a spiritual father voice into your life, you see, you don't just have to have one spiritual father. You can have, the Bible says you have 10,000 teachers. Why don't you just decide who are going to be some father voices that speak destiny over my life? And if you'll allow me to just for a minute, I'm going to be a father voice in your life. Just let me speak to you. Maybe like your earthly daddy never did. Yeah, father of lies kind of voice, right? Just tell you, you have a great future. You have a great next. And whatever you believe for, God. God's for you. Who can be against you? He's on your side, and it's going to come to pass in the name of Jesus. Come on, just receive that. Receive that. Did my friend Crystal Walker ever think that she'd be on the Conan O'Brien show? I'm in Jacksonville, Florida this week, flipping the channels. There's Crystal Walker with Conan O'Brien on TBS playing makeup with him. 
Mary Kay. How many of y'all saw that show? It was crazy. Then I flipped the channels and I heard my voice. It was crazy. (laughs) Sheila was in the bathroom. I go, Sheila. And before I could connect what was on the screen, I heard my voice. And all of a sudden, uh, 700 Club is doing a story on me. I said, Sheila, come here. This is crazy. Chris was on one station. I'm on the other station. It's crazy. Hey, what do you believe in God for? You know, for your next thing to be your best thing, you've got to believe something that goes way beyond your last thing. Come on. I said, for your next thing to be better than your last thing, you've got to believe beyond what you've ever seen before. Because this is the day in which we live. By the way, yeah, again, which biblical passage says this? Because I just read Genesis 22, and it doesn't say any of that. In our church, let me just tell you, if you're a guest with us, thank you for being here today. But let me just tell you this. This is our year to expand. We've given that word. This is a year where we are going to expand. We're going to break down. Come on, somebody. We're going to break up. We're going to break open, and we're going to break forth. Come on, say it with me. We're going to break down. We're going to break up. We're going to break open, and we're going to break forth. Somebody put a big amen on that. Yeah, you've definitely broken down. Yeah. You know, kind of like a, a you know when a car dies, you've definitely broken down. Theologically, none of this is biblical Christianity. This is absolute narcissistic nonsense, all in the name of prophetic words of destiny and stuff like that. Wow. All right. We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Hired Christian. Quick break when we come back. First contestant in our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, 2014 edition. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. 
Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Contestant number one. Ready to launch into this. Expect bad things to happen. Here we go. Nervous, you know. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, the first contestant in the 2014 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, comes to us via Gateway Church, Southlake, Texas. Robert Morris presiding. That's right, Robert Morris of the Blessed Life fame. The name of the sermon is entitled, God Needs You. Uh Uh-huh, apparently God needs you. I mean, who knew? And, um... I wish I could tell you which biblical text this is actually based upon, but as you're about to find out, the core concept of this particular Easter sermon is based upon a direct revelation that Robert Morris claims that he has received from God himself. Yeah, that's right. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here is Robert Morris of Blessed Life fame and his Easter sermon entitled, God Needs You. Here we go. You take your Bibles, if you brought them, and turn to Genesis chapter 2, and then put a marker. I've got my marker here at 1 Samuel 17. So if- All right, so Genesis 2, 1 Samuel 17. That's the story of David and Goliath. This ought to be interesting. So he's got your markers out. You marked your Bible. You open in Genesis 2, and then put a marker at 1 Samuel 17. This may be different from any Easter message you've ever heard. I'm not going to share the resurrection story. I'm going to actually share a truth with you in three words. Now, notice, um, if you go to a church in on Easter Sunday, <laughs> listen, I'm not going to talk about the resurrection. No, 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 no. we got something more important to talk about than that. I can't think of anything more important to talk about on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, than the resurrection of Jesus. So already we're off to a really bad start. That sum up why Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross and rose again on the third day. And I hope you never forget the truth of these three words. The three words are God needs you. God needs you. Now, probably all... So the reason Jesus came to the earth and died on the cross is because God needs me? 
Um, you, you got a Bible passage that actually says that? All of you here have done some sort of speaking for some group at some point in time. Maybe you've done a presentation at work, or you've taught a small group at church, or you uh, taught a class, or you had some sort of a, a, a talk you gave at something. Uh, what you do when, when you have this, if you've ever taken any time of class on how to speak publicly, or maybe you just did this on your own, your, your, your title is your, your topic. It's your theme. It's your subject of what you're sharing on. It, it's really your thesis that you're trying to prove uh, in, in your presentation. And then when you come up with points, each point is supposed to support your, your subject or your topic, your title. And the reason I'm making such a big deal of that is my, my title is God needs you. Uh, my first point is, here's point number one, God doesn't need anything. As you see, I didn't do real well with that point. Okay, here's the reason I'm saying this. Uh, years ago, Debbie and I uh, were on a cruise. We were on vacation and we were in Alaska and we were on the boat just having a good time, sitting on the top deck, each reading a book. And I put my book down for a moment and I looked at this vast wilderness of Alaska. If you've ever been there, it's been there. It's just miles and miles, you know? And, um, I just had this thought. I just thought, God, you are huge. You, you are so big. And I just thought you, you don't need anything, God. And just like that, I felt like the Lord said these three words to me. I need you and there it is <clears throat> direct revelation apparently coming all the way from the top god himself so what are we going to do with this <laughs> okay so this is an easter sermon that technically isn't based upon a biblical text um it's not about the resurrection and all of the theology that you are about to hear is based upon this particular direct revelation that God spoke to Robert Morris. Now we've got a problem. We've got a big problem, okay? So if I sit there and say, well, listen, God's word is very clear. God doesn't need us. This is false doctrine. Robert Morris counters, but this is what God spoke to my heart. Okay, well, all right, so what do I do then? Because if I deny this truth, I'm sinning if God really is the one who told him this, right? Uh-huh. Yet what he's saying is directly contradicted by Scripture. So why should I believe that God the Holy Spirit is the origin of this message that Robert Morris claims was spoken into his heart, which now is the thesis for this Easter sermon? Hmm? We continue. Now, I hate to tell you my response, but I'm going to. I begin to explain to God why that is not theologically correct. Maybe you were explaining to the devil because the devil was teaching you false doctrine. For, for first-year theology students probably know this. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient, and he's self-sustaining. He does not need us to exist. He exists completely on his own. He is self-existent, 
self-sufficient, and self-sustaining. And I actually quoted him a scripture in case he had forgotten. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so this conversation directly with God. I said, Lord, Acts 17, 25 says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things. I said, Lord, the Bible says you don't need anything. You're, you're self-existent. You're self-sufficient. You're self-sustaining. You don't need anything. He said to me, I need you. Mm, so God directly contradicted his own word, huh? Right. That means you weren't actually talking to God. And then he began to take me through the Bible and show me this truth in Scripture. And so I want to help you, you see that today. Um, and point number one, God doesn't need anything. I know he exists completely independent of us and on his own. But here's point number two. God decided to need you. Uh-huh. God decided to need me. Is there a biblical passage that says this, or is this more direct revelation that we're going to be hearing? He decided to need you. Let me say it another way. God doesn't need us to exist, but he decided to need us to coexist. And let me show you some examples in Scripture. First, Yeah, please. I want to see this clearly laid out in God's Word. Genesis 2, very, very uh, simple example. But Genesis 2, verse 19 says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we read over the Bible. But if you look at that last statement, don't let that go by without seeing the truth of it. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Okay. That now, <clears throat> here's the important part. Okay. Yes, we see that God gave Adam the task of naming the animals. You'll look long and hard in the book of Genesis to find the answer to the question, why didn't God name the animals himself? It doesn't say. So if you are going to answer the question, why did God choose Adam to name the animals and then put forward a, a reason automatically that reason is extra biblical and speculative because God has not revealed in his word why it doesn't say. So any attempt to answer the question why is automatically speculation and is outside of Scripture and is doctrine that is not found in God's Word. Unless you can find a biblical passage that says God chose to have Adam name the animals for this reason, any reason that you provide um, you know, is not going to be biblical. Straight up. So we've got a big problem in the sermon so far. We continue. That was its name. Okay, that's why we have hippopotamus. Because Adam said, you look like a hippopotamus. That's why. Now, if you remember, Adam was naming the animals, and he went to sleep. 
And if you remember, it says that as he named the animals, there was not found a companion for him. In other words, he's looking for a companion. Remember, he's created in the image of God and he has a desire and his desire is for a companion. And he's in the image of God. That ought to tell you something about God. And so he's naming the animals and he goes to sleep. And when he wakes up, there is this new animal there. And he actually said, we have in the Bible, he actually said, whoa, man. Okay, that's, that's how she got her name if you don't know. But um, anyway, here's the point. He goes to sleep while he's naming the animals. So I'm thinking he's getting drowsy. And so I've been thinking. Yeah, it, it says God caused him to go into a deep sleep. Um, yeah. So what you're about to hear is not actually from Genesis chapter two. It's all part of a joke that Robert Morris is trying to tell this Easter Sunday. This, what, what's the last group of animals that he named because he was getting drowsy. And I think I know, I think it was the birds. The reason I say that is because some of the names of the birds, uh, took a lot of creativity, the hawk. The falcon, the eagle, all great names. But there are some names of birds that did not take much creativity. And I think this is when he was getting drowsy. I think right toward the end, he's getting drowsy. His eyelids are getting heavy. He sees a few more birds he's got a name. And here are the names he came up with. I think he went like this. Black bird. How much creativity did that take? And then he goes on. Blue bird. Red bird. Come on. And then I actually think I know the last animal that he named. It was a bird again. But I think he had actually closed his eyes and he heard something and he said, humming bird. Now, it's just my personal opinion, but why didn't God... Now, actually, this entire sermon is that, his personal opinion, which is not what pastors are called to preach. To Adam, come here, come here, son, come here. Uh, okay, look over there. See, see that uh, animal, big, great big animal, long nose. Okay, that's an elephant. That's an elephant, Okay. Uh, oh, see the one right there coming out of the trees with the tall neck? Okay, that's a giraffe. And then, oh, duck. Okay, see, that's, see why I call that one a duck? See? Okay. Why didn't God tell Adam the names of the animals? Why did God ask? The Bible doesn't answer this question. Adam to name the animals. Okay. Here's my theory. Okay, that's the important set of words. Here's my theory. Yeah, your theories do not rise to the level of Christian doctrine. My theories do not rise to the level of Christian doctrine. No pastor is to preach his theories. That God decided to need Adam 
in the operation and the management of the earth. God decided to need him, huh? And, of course, he said that was his theory. But remember at the beginning of the sermon, he said that God directly told him this? Hmm. We continue. Let me say it another way. Uh, He decided to partner with us in the earth. Now, this is very, very important. The Lord began years ago to take me through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. So God directly took him through Scripture after Scripture to teach him this, that God decided to need us. How he partners with us. And, And in essence, how he doesn't do anything on this earth if he can't have a partner. I want you to think about this. In Ezekiel, he says, I, I sought for one person, just one, that would stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that I would not have to pour my anger out. But I didn't find one. Therefore, I had to pour my anger out. But if I just had one person that would have agreed with me. Uh, uh, in Mark in chapter 6, one of the most amazing scriptures, it says Jesus could not do a mighty work there because of their unbelief. That's an amazing scripture. It doesn't say Jesus would not. It says he could not because they didn't believe. Is it possible that God has limited his unlimited power on this earth? Is it possible? Yeah, a lot of things are possible. Show me the verse that says that God has limited his great power. Where does it say it in the clear passages of Scripture? Our faith. Let me say that again. God has limited his unlimited power, but he has limited it on this earth to our faith, our partnership. So Again, you asked, is it possible? Now you turn it into a positive statement. How are you going to do that without a biblical text? Possible. That what you want to happen in your life right now, God has the power, but he's actually waiting on you to partner with him. Very possible. Okay, so if this is... Very possible, very possible. I mean, there's a whole lot of other possibilities too. True, and I believe it is. Is it possible that our enemy, Satan, knows this? And is it possible if he knows that God doesn't move unless we partner with him, is it possible he uses that against us? It's possible the devil wears a pink tutu. I mean, who cares what's possible? Hey, First Samuel 17, this is the story of David and Goliath. But maybe you'll see it a little differently today. Uh, this is Goliath speaking now, and we'll start in verse 8. Then Now, real quick. Story of David and Goliath. According to the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is types and shadows, tupas kaiskia, types and shadows that point us to Christ. Who do you think the story of David and Goliath is pointing us to? It's pointing us to Jesus. Okay. Let me give you an example of how you can preach Jesus from this text. Okay. David, at the point that we get to in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David, just like Isaac, when we read in, uh, in Je- Genesis chapter 22, David at that point was the kind of the end of the line, if you would, uh, for the uh, messianic um, 
for the messianic bloodline. Okay, it came up to him up to that point. His this, the next son in succession who would actually be the one who would carry the Messiah in his bloodline wasn't born yet. Okay, and that would be Solomon. So at this point, the Messiah is the one who's going to step on the battlefield, so to speak. And Jesus is, you know, typologically, more than typologically, Jesus, you know, you know is prophet, priest, and king. And King David is a major figure in, in Messianic, uh, you know, biblical passages, really all of them being Messianic. But in the Messianic, uh, if you would, major blocks as way, of way of thinking about Jesus, prophet, priest, king, because uh, Jesus is going to be, um, you know, sit on the throne of David forever. Right. Okay, so it's majorly important that Jesus is the son of David. Majorly important. Now, if this is type and shadow, and this story tells us, uh, is really kind of telling us about Jesus, and the way type and shadow works, by the way, if you've seen the movie uh, that was put out at was it around Christmas time called Saving Mr. Banks. Have you, if, you, if you've seen that movie, it's a story about the, uh, the author of... Um, of the books, uh, the Mary Poppins books, and um, how Walt Disney tried to get her to, you know, work with Disney so that Disney can take her Mary Poppins story and make it into a Disney film. It's an interesting story, and what you find out in the in the movie Saving Banks is that the gal who authored the books, you know, the Mary Poppins stories, that those stories were type and shadow pointing to a real story in her life. Uh-huh. In fact, the Mary Poppins story, if you would, was kind of a you know, some symbolic type and shadow of her own relationship with her own father and her own father's shortcomings and how she had longed for her own father's story to end differently than it did. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, so when we think of type and shadow in the Old Testament, think of it in that sense. The stories that are in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, they are real history. God paints these typological stories about the Messiah, Jesus, in the real life events and history of of the people whose uh, whose lives are recorded in the Old Testament. But their stories, their lives are telling a different story, and so it's on a different level. Typologically, they're pointing us to Jesus. So let's take a look at uh, 1 Samuel 17 and see if typologically how we can preach Christ from this text, because it can be done. In fact, it can be done very easily, just like Genesis 22. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah, and Ephes Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side... And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. 
And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, uh, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. Singing Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Right, exactly. It's, it's all on purpose. That sounds like where Jesus is from. Right, exactly. <clears throat> in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. <clears throat> forty days. Yeah, he's saying, it sounds a lot like Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Right. How long was, it, was um, the children of Israel, how long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. How long did the flood last? Forty days and forty nights it rained. Right. So this is kind of significant that's going on here. God is intending for you to be able to kind of matrix this all together and go, man, this sounds like something to do with Jesus. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so when Jesse said to David's son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So now Saul and they and all the men of Israel where the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers and as he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before. And David heard him. And then all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. 
and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to them, uh, and to, to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and that the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words of David uh, that David spoke were heard, <clears throat> they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go up with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Notice the theme here. The Lord saves, but not with spear and not with sword. So then the Philistine rose and came quickly to drew, uh, drew near to meet David. David ran quickly, took the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. That's right. So how do we preach Christ from this text? Well, clearly, David is the one who the bloodline of the Messiah has come to at this point. So the Messiah is the one who took the battlefield that day. It is the Messiah who struck down the Philistine. Now, realistically here, what is this all pointing to? This is all pointing to the very real situation that we all find ourselves in. We find ourselves enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. And not one human being from among the ranks of all of humanity has ever been able to go toe-to-toe with the devil or with death and win. But Jesus did that for us. And you can think of it this way. How did he do it? David took up five smooth stones. Jesus did it with his five wounds. That's right. Jesus was pierced five times, both hands, both feet, and the spear was thrust into his side. You see how that works? So all of this is pointing us to Jesus. And how did he conquer? How did he conquer? With his five wounds, he conquered the devil and death and destroyed the armies that stood against all of us and enslaved all of us that none of us could stand up to. That's how Jesus did it. It's very easy to preach Christ from this text, and Jesus himself is the one who teaches us that the scriptures are about him. Now, we're about uh, ten and a half minutes into the sermon, and we've got a major problem now because um, not only are we dealing with speculative theology, direct revelation, and now we're going to wrestle the story of David and Goliath and somehow turn it into a passage that teaches that God needs us. I don't think so. We continue. That's Goliath, stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Watch watch this carefully. Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel, the people of God, this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Okay, here's this giant over nine feet tall, about nine feet, four inches tall, according to the Bible. Here he's standing there saying this to to the people of God. Now, don't you think that God could have sent a lightning bolt and hit Goliath right in the middle of the head? Don't you think? I mean, it's all reasonable. God could have I mean, could have caused the earth to open up. He could have hit him with a meteorite. God could have caused a large vulture to come down and plucked his eyeballs out. God could have done a number of things. This is no way to do theology. Well, he could because he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, omni meaning all, potent meaning power. He has all power. But is it possible that he couldn't because he's limiting himself? Is it possible that he couldn't? Again, which biblical passage says that God limited himself so that he couldn't? To someone on earth partnering with him. (laughs) And is it possible that Satan has set this whole thing up because he knows how God works? And he knows that if there's not one person in Israel that has the courage to stand up to his giant, he knows he's going to get to take all of Israel into bondage. 
So is it possible that there's this this uh, conversation? In- so is it possible? Is it possible? Is it possible? This again, all speculation going on where uh, Satan is actually saying to God, I've got you now. I've got you because I know how you work and and you don't move unless someone agrees with you, unless someone steps out in faith. So I've, I've got you now and I'm going to take all. Now, let me prove that that theology is not true. No, God doesn't move unless somebody steps out in faith, right? Here's what Romans says. So, yeah, if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 5, here's what it says. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh huh. Notice that Jesus didn't wait to die for us until we can partner with him. He acted completely unilaterally on his own to save us even when we were mired in sin and dead in trespasses and sins. People of Israel in the bondage because there is not a man in all of Israel that has the courage to stand up to my man. I think God said something like this. I don't need a man. I've got a boy. I I think God said something like this. Again, this is all extra biblical. None of it's biblical. Boy, that will. And I've been preparing him with a lion and a bear and a slingshot. And I've got this all taken care of. See, Satan can't see the future. He can see the horizon only, but God sees the future. I want you to know something. God already has a David prepared for your Goliath. Already. Yeah, his name is Jesus. And the Goliath that we really all of us face is the devil himself. And Jesus has conquered him by his five wounds. But it's possible that that David is you. (laughs) No, it is not possible that that David is me. That's utter blasphemy. Jesus is our David, the son of David, who conquered the devil for us. And he's been preparing you with some little battles for the big battle you're in right now. Yeah, no. Now, this is weird because this particular sermon has a, uh, if you would, a, uh, a commercial break. So we'll skip through the commercial break and continue with the sermon. Here we go. So God, he doesn't need anything really to exist. I understand that. But he decided to need us. So here's point number three. Have you decided to need God? Have I decided to need God? I need God whether I decide to or not. 
I'm a creature, not a, not a deity. You could take the words partner with and substitute them for the word need. God decided to partner with you. Have you decided to partner with God? Now, I have three uh, sub-points uh, under this point to help us understand that God has a part and we have a part. So, so let me tell you these. Here's the first sub-point. Um, God is never going to do your part. Now, that's very important because many times we're praying and asking God to do our part. For instance, we're asking God to heal our marriage, but God in Ephesians 5 said, you love her as Christ loves the church, and you honor him as the church honors Christ. And you're not honoring... All law, no gospel. The imperatives that come in the later part of Ephesians all are contingent upon the early part of Ephesians, which is all about the gospel. Christians always do their good works in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done. Christ has set us free from bondage and slavery to sin, death, and the devil. We are now set free to love and serve our neighbor and to love God. And that comes forth in our good works. So here, the way uh, Robert Morris is preaching this, he's preaching straight-up synergism, which is a heresy, and to boot— He's taking the gospel imperatives of the book of Ephesians and turning them all into law. It's not loving, and you're asking God to heal your marriage, you can forget it. Because God's not going to do your part. Your part is to love, and your part is to honor. That's, that's your part. And I'm telling you, a whole bunch of people are mad at God because they know, God, I know you have the power. I know you could do this if you really wanted to. And God's thinking, well, I'd love to do it if you just do your part. If you just partner, God's never... Really, uh, which biblical passage says that? Because Ephesians doesn't say this either. None of this sermon, this Easter sermon, is even biblical. Your part. Um, heard about this woman working in the nursery and unmarried, no children, but, but um, volunteers of the nursery. And she just loves the Lord. She said she's got this bubbly personality and this, this awesome sense of humor. And she was working in the nursery, and she was actually changing a diaper. And she was just kind of joking around with the Lord, you know. And she just said, Lord, are you going to help me when I get married? Are you going to help me when I have children of my own? And then she just kind of jokingly said, "Uh, are you going to change diapers for me? And and she just felt like she heard the Lord say, I am the Lord. I change not. (laughs) Uh, Now a joke with direct revelation. Mm Mm-hmm. There's some things uh, God's just not going to do. He's, he's just not going to do them. All right, so God's never going to do your part. Here's the second thing. Your part is never supernatural. It's never supernatural. In, in other words, God's part is supernatural, but your part's not supernatural. This is actually good news. You, you have a part and God has a part. You know, I haven't heard any good news in this Easter sermon yet. Talking about uh, birds a moment ago, and uh, it just reminded me about, like, in school. I remember in school, you know, we have a part. We pray for tests, but our part is to study. Well, I heard about this student that, um, and the, the subject on birds reminded me about this. I heard about this student that went four years, and he came to the end of his four years, and he found that he still needed one class to graduate. 
And so he went to the dean and he said, you know, I've worked hard. I've been a diligent student. Uh, I've already got a, a church lined up where I'm going to go pastor. They've already called me and, and I'll still be here in the area. I can take another class, but I really want to focus my attention on this church. He said to the dean, would you just be honest with me and tell me what is the easiest course in the entire curriculum? And, and the, the dean said, well, you know, you, you have worked hard and you, you've been a very diligent student. So because of that, I'll tell you, he said, it's a class on birds. And he said, it's taught by an old, old professor. He's so old, he looks like you'll have to get better to die. That's how old he is. And so the student signs up for this one class. And over the summer, sure enough, the old professor died. And in came a new professor immediately out of graduate school. And he was determined to make that course on birds the hardest and the most difficult course in the entire college curriculum. And so the first day of class, the students walked in and the professor, a new professor went back and he pulled down this chart. He only pulled it about halfway down and all it showed were two bird legs. And he said, I want you to tell me the name of this bird its order, its class, its phylum, and its kingdom, all by just looking at its legs. And we'll have three examinations throughout the semester. This is the first one. This will count one-third of your grade. And the young student that only needed one class thought for a minute, and then he gathered his books up, and he got up, and he started to walk out of class. And the professor said, where are you going? He said, I, I, I'm, I'm dropping the class. He said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of to tell you the name of a bird just by looking at its legs. And the professor said, well, what's your name? So I marked it off the roll. He put his books down, pulled his pants up and said, you tell me. And yet another joke. Have we heard God's word rightly handled at all in this sermon? Easter sermon? No. Have we heard about Christ's death on the cross for our sins? Is victorious resurrection from the grave for our justification? No. We're just getting a lot of bird jokes. Actually, that doesn't have anything to do with the message. I just, I just thought it's funny. The student had a part, you know, to study as well. But here's, here's the point. Your part's never supernatural. I want you to think about this. David slung the stone. God did the supernatural part and made it hit exactly where it would knock a nine-foot giant out. And by the way, when you read that, the giant actually stoned him here. The giant actually fell forward. Just like when the Philistines conquered the, the Ark of the Covenant and they took it to the, to the God of Dagon, Dagon fell forward. It kind of reminds you that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Moses held the rod up. That's natural. That's something any human could have done. God parted the Red Sea. He held the rod up. Let me put that in Texan terms. He picked up a stick. And I know we see these movies of, you know, Moses doing like this. Here's the way I see it in my mind. I could have done that. Again, this is all law synergism. You could have done that. 
So your part's never supernatural. Here's the, the third thing I want to tell you. Your part is first. Your part's first. Now I realize that we love God because he first loved us. I understand that. But what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus is never going to come and die again on the cross. God has already done his part. Um, then how is my part first if God's already done his part? Hmm. Logic would dictate that God did his part first. Our, our, our part is first. God's already done his part. Here, here are some scriptures that help us understand our part is first. It says, you shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Amen. It doesn't say they shall recover and you shall lay hands on them. They sh- Again, you are totally ripping these verses out of context and you're making basically everything contingent upon our work. And it's not. Cover is God's part, but that doesn't happen until we do our part. Here's another verse where Jesus said himself, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Yeah, and that's talking about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus giving the, you know, the Christian church the keys to bind and loose sins. And when you look at the Greek there, it's actually very clear in the Greek that what's being pronounced by the human agent is something that has already been declared in heaven. God's actually the one doing the binding and the loosing. Oh, man. So we have to do our part first. Okay, let me go back to uh, Adam just for a moment. Uh, Romans 5 tells us that sin entered the world through Adam. And then death to all men. In other words, Adam sinned. Now listen to me, this is what Romans says. And all were condemned. All. You and I were condemned. Every human since Adam. Born condemned. Okay, this is true, which actually teaches monergism, that God is the one who saves, not us. Are we building up for a gospel nugget here? Maybe. Okay, I want, when you think about that, doesn't that seem a little unfair? Doesn't it seem a little unfair that one man sinned and the whole world was condemned? Now, see, you, you don't want to answer that you know, because you're in church right now. But you'll probably go out, you'll get in the car, and you'll say, you know, it really does seem unfair. When you think about it, it's, it's unfair. <laughs> okay, it wasn't unfair. Let me tell you what it was. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. Only God could have thought of it. Let me tell you why. Since, since it only took one man to lose it all. It only took one man to get it all back. <laughs> That's brilliant. Getting dangerously close to a gospel nugget. And that's the story of Easter. Please tell us the story of Easter because you haven't done so yet. See, a man lost it. So a man had to get it back. So God became a man. Yes. Uh, let me say it another way. Do you remember what Goliath said? Choose a man that he may come down and fight with me. Now, this is interesting. Does this show us that Robert Morris actually understands the story of David and Goliath is actually about Jesus? 
If I win, I get them all. If he wins, he gets them all. Okay, again, is it possible there was a conversation in heaven like this? And Satan said to God, choose a man that he may come down and fight with me. He wins, he gets them. If I win, I get them. And I'm wondering if God said something like this. Okay. I choose Jesus. And Satan probably would have said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Uh, yeah, again, we're, we're, we sure are adding a lot to the Bible here, aren't we? He's not a man. And God said, well, we'll just make him one. <laughs> and the Son of God became a man. And defeated Satan and sin and death and hell. So he does know that the story of David and Goliath is about Jesus. Weird, because when he was in the David and Goliath text, he made it about you, not Jesus. Wow. And he did it. And he did it for all. Hebrews says once, he died once for all. So you might be thinking, so Pastor Robert, are you saying that, you know, everyone is going to go to heaven? No, 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 no. Okay, no. hang on a second here. There, there, there was a gospel nugget in there, and, you know, since there was a gospel nugget, I mean, you would expect at least that during a, a, a seeker-driven uh, service So on Easter. So here's our gospel nugget soundbite. Yeah, and that gospel was moving really quick. If I didn't point it out to you, you might have missed it. So, but that's really not his point, is it? We continue. The whole point of the message. What I'm telling you is that God's already done his part. (laughs) But whether or not you go to heaven is dependent upon whether you do your part. Uh, No, absolutely not. Okay. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hmm? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? Did you make yourself alive? Nope. Scripture says God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who raised us up? God did. So that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one 
can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. According to the verbs of Ephesians chapter 2, who is the one who raises us up to life even though we're born dead in trespasses and sins? God is. God is. God is the sole agent in our salvation. This is called biblical monergism. What Robert Morris is saying is flat out Pelagianism, and it is a rank heresy. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to do more good things than bad. No, no, that's not your part. The Pharisees asked Jesus. Now, they didn't say it quite this way, but here's what they were saying. What's our part? And Jesus said, you know what your part is? Your part is that you believe in the one whom he sent. That's your part. No, that's absolutely rank Pelagianism. That's a heresy, folks. Again, it says that God is the one who raises us up, and it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is not your doing. It is God's doing. And how does God raise us up? Miraculously, through the preaching of the gospel, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is God who raises us up. It is not our part to believe as if there's a portion of salvation that is our part to do. This is to turn belief into a work instead of a gift given by God. Rank Pelagian heresy here, folks. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every service, we've had many, many people at every campus give their lives to Christ. In other words, do your part. Like the testimony we saw a moment ago of John said, you know, I grew up in church, but it never made Jesus the center of my life. Made Jesus. Yet the scripture says that God is the one who raised us up. Prayed a very short prayer, but I meant it. I, I want to help you. If, if you'd like to cue sappy music, this is an emotional manipulation technique used by seeker-driven pastors and other pastors in order to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending and getting ready to do business with people in the audience. Jesus, the center of your life today. In other words, if you'd like to do your part and accept what God's already done. On the Again, that is not our part. The ability to believe is given as a gift by God. That's what Ephesians 2 says. For you. I want to help you. So if you're not sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven. Or if you know you're not where you need to be in your relationship with God. I want to just lead you in a prayer. I'm just simply asking you to pray this prayer in your heart after me and to mean it. So if that's you, no matter which campus you're attending or if you're in an overflow room, would you simply just, just, just breathe this prayer in your heart to God right now? Just say, dear God. And when you have struggles in your life, you'll ask yourself the question, maybe I didn't mean it. Did I mean it when I prayed it? Yeah, when you, if you want, you know, in fact, what I'm going to do in both the podcast stream for this, you know, for uh, today and... Um, and on the website at fightingforthefaith.com, I'm going to put a link to Phil Johnson's lecture on the Pelagian heresy.
Yep, that's what I'm going to do because you need to hear it in conjunction with what it is that you just heard. This was rank Pelagianism, rank synergism. This is a heresy. That is not the gospel. And somebody giving their lives to Jesus is not how somebody becomes a Christian. In fact, the, the, this from the beginning, when, the, when this heresy first reared its ugly head, the church recognized it for what it is, a doctrine of demons. And that's what this entire sermon was from beginning to end. And that, my friends, is contestant number one in this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen